It's beginning to look a lot like that holiday season, which means it's that time of the year where you start making a list and checking it twice and realise that you, your friends and family have got way too much crap in your lives. So this festive season, gift yourself or someone you love a monthly or annual subscription to the Storymakers Institute, your front row pass to the world's most intriguing storytellers. Receive new episodes of the show every week and your own premium feed with extended full-length episodes only for paid subscribers. To set up your subscription, just visit thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com forward slash subscribe. Happy holidays. Hi there, and welcome to the Storymakers Institute, your front row pass to the world's most intriguing storytellers. And this week, say hello to Tim Winton, author of 29 books. His work has been translated into 28 languages and adapted for film, television, theatre and opera. He's listed as an Australian national living treasure. And he's also a passionate environmental campaigner. Last week, the World Economic Forum told us that global emissions, which are continuing to rise, must be cut by 7% annually if we want to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. In this episode of the Storymakers Institute, Tim and I sit down to mull over this grim reality. We explore how story has propped up fossil fueled capitalism, whilst creative folks scramble for crumbs off the boardroom floor. We talk about why we need to ignore bread and circuses, and as Tim says, start breaking some shit. Tim, welcome to the Storymakers Institute. Thanks for having me on. Tonight, you'll be delivering a keynote presentation at the announcement of the Nature Conservancy Australia 2023 Nature Writing Prize at RMIT University in Melbourne. This comes off the back of the 2023 IPCC report, which tells us that we've got seven years left to cut carbon emissions by 2050 before climate damage to the planet is irreversible. So how can story influence affect or alter this trajectory? if at all? Well, I think it's a story that's got us into this problem in the first place. You know, I've just read uh, Justin Walsh's book, Eating the Earth. Um, He's a corporate lawyer, investment banker, or uh, ex-former investment banker, a money wonk anyway. And he says that uh, in, in economics, as in all other human affairs, everything really boils down to story. You know the narrative that the dominant narrative that you that you tell, um, and sadly, I think the dominant narrative of our time and our era has has been the dominant story has been fossil capitalism, a way of organising the the not just the economy but the world um, so that um, nature gets priced out of the um, of the equation. So nature essentially in our lifetimes has been treated as an externality. It, it's, it's, not, it's not integral to any of the calculations that anybody makes about reality. Um, and so essentially it's a false narrative. It's a, it's a lie. It's a, you know, there's a huge hole at the heart of that story. And, um, and that's why we suddenly find ourselves um, with – with less than a decade to try and save the biosphere, um, so you know it's quite sobering. You know, it's a it's a it's a tough way to start off a chat, but uh, but there it is. You know, you asked, <laughs> welcome. <laughs> but, yeah, look, <laughs> and then and, and then you realise that yeah, okay, uh, I'm a storyteller, um, but by trade and and um, by career, 
Um, but you realise that, the, that the, the most potent storytellers in our, in our time aren't novelists or poets, um, and they're not journalists, they're economists and, um, and policymakers and plutocrats. So, you know, the, I think the challenge of, of our time and the challenge for our children and their children um, is to change the story is to change the narrative, is to find a new story that is um, that puts nature front and centre. And uh, I, I think, as you say, we don't have – seven years seems like a long time, but um, uh, as your Jesuit said, seven years is all you need to, 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 to you know, to – to make the character of a person. Um, yes, one but, life cycle. You, know, you yeah. even remember the last seven years. They, they went back, They went past so fast, you know. Um, this is an emergency. This might come as quite a shock to many people, even though it has been a known problem for decades, many, many decades, if not, if not 100 years, that there could be some forewarning of this particular moment in time. And yet we've all steadily just sort of got on and done our thing. And, and as you said, the, that story being the, the, the problem and the dominant narrative is this, this reliance on propping up fossil fueled capitalism, which I think is a, a term that, um, that really sums up the two, sides of the equation really when you're when you're looking at this but i wanted to drill into something you mentioned earlier about how actually the power of all of this doesn't sit necessarily in the writers or the poets or the musicians but yet in the economists and it's got me thinking god maybe this whole show that i've created over many years is suddenly i've suddenly just been talking to the wrong person here the wrong people actually are are in the driver's seat here but what influence do you think can storytellers have in this moment and in this mess? Yeah, I think it's. Uh, look, I understand the the I understand the feeling of bewilderment and a sense of powerlessness and and the tendency towards despair. But I think it's it's too easy to um, to fall into that. And and you know, from a from a writer's point of view, we've been sold this idea of our of our impotence for a long time. I, I think we somehow have accepted our irrelevance and it's, and it's puzzling as to why. Some of that is about the dominant ideology of our, intellectually of our time, certainly in the last 20 years, has been that um, writing about nature is naff, that it's reactionary, that it's rustic. Uh, you know, a, a, an Australian literary critic uh, about 20 years ago said that uh, Australia's, Australian writers obsession with landscape was um, both debilitating and destructive. Um, oh, wow. So for someone like me who, who sort of trades heavily in, in, in geography and, <laughs> and, and landscape and, 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 and the ecology as part of, the face. part of being an, uh, yeah, it was basically, you're, you're not welcome here. That's, that was the message we were given. I think there was this kind of reaching for a kind of a cosmopolitanism of smooth surfaces, you know, this sort of cheap universalism. Can only straighten the road by bulldozing the landscape. So, look, you know, I think there's a there, there are cultural reasons why writers have either a ignored nature because they've been discouraged from writing about nature, and that writers have somehow have accepted the idea of their own impotence. So, so I guess what I'm what I've been thinking about um, a lot in the last few years, more urgently than ever, is 
finding ways to encourage storytellers to seize the day. Our agency might be limited, but we do have agency. And I think we have an obligation to participate in what's coming, you know, either a transition or a revolution or a collapse. Um, We're not going to be absolved of participating in whatever comes down the pike. And um, and if chaos is coming, um, I'd, I'd rather be an agent of chaos than a than a than subject entirely to it. So look, I think we can just do what we can to to challenge the dominant narrative that's um, put our world in and our and our descendants in in jeopardy. And um, uh, I think we just have to we just have to call things out and pay attention and compelled by all the various means that storytellers have at their disposal, compel, persuade, enchant readers and civilians um, in our communities and all over the world to look at what's in front of us. A couple of things I wanted to pick up. One being this idea of impotence and accepting a lesser place. And I think that falls into the money story too, by accepting the grant or please, sir, can I have some more mentality that um, that uh, that the power is in the corporation rather than sitting within the individual artist area as a kind of transactional exercise. And that's certainly something that I think has been a key concern for me um, so far as the the balances of, of, of power within kind of corporate structure versus versus the, the, the solo individual trying to be the story maker. And then the second point I wanted to make was about this notion of naffness that you brought up in, in nature writing. In a way, perhaps a kinder way to think about it even though this is not a nice way to think about it, is it's almost like it's the broccoli that we know that we should eat, but yet we still go for the junk food. Yeah, I, I, you know, and I think uh, to that point, I think Marx was right in talking about opiates. And, um, and I think a lot of us are encouraged to produce tranquilizers for our community to essentially collaborate in the production of more bread and circuses. Um, and, and, it tends to be more on the circus side than the provision of bread as well. There's not much nutrition in some of the stuff that we're encouraged to, to produce as a form of what Amitav Ghosh would call, you know, patterns of evasion. And um, so, so I think it's, um, you know, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a tough gig facing up to our moment, um, but I think it's worth us just looking at ways in which we can we can refuse to avert our gaze and to help um, those around us collectively to to refuse to avert our gaze and and engage with um, the, the tough stuff. In in previous eras, when communities find themselves uh, in a in a wartime situation, uh, writers and artists have been a have been a part of holding up their community and doing their part. You know. Um, I suspect that we're entering a moment like like that where we'll have to do our part. And look, you know, I I, I was raised in modernism, and modernism had this model of the artist as this sort of high priest of culture, but a uh, a pastor of no parish. We know the, the artist had absolutely no obligation to the community. Um, uh, there was a kind of a contempt for ordinary people. H. Uh, L. Mencken called. Um, the, the, the great unwashed, he called them the boobs. 
There's a kind of level, <laughs> level of contempt in, in, in that, which I think um, we haven't quite shrugged off. And, you know, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm wondering a bit, but I, I just think we need to shed certain ideas about what it is, to, you know, to be an artist. I think we need to be a little more engaged. We need to be less meek. We need to be more militant. And I don't know, where do we find the confidence? Sometimes you just find confidence from the sense of rising panic. You know, Andrea's mom, the climate scholar, says, feel the panic and act. Mm. I give you permission to wander in this conversation. This is this is absolutely part of <laughs> any episode of the Storymakers Institute. And I've been thinking about that bread and circuses and got, it's just a little bit emotional in the sense of kind of realising perhaps I've also contributed to the bread and circuses of some of the work that I've created. Do you feel like you've contributed to that as as well? Uh, yeah, look, I don't think I don't think any of us are innocent. I, I think I think as a you know as culture makers, the broader culture has been complicit in if in this kind of evasion. Um, and I think you know other writers like Amitav Ghosh and 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 Andreas Mam are. Uh, are pretty scathing about this and I you know I have to I mean I have been engaged in in the business of trying to bring nature into the front of the frame for over 40 years so um you know I, I suspect I might not be the worst offender um but I and I also you know I also still believe in the the business of useless beauty um <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a I'm a I'm a storyteller because I, because because it's a it's it's about beauty. I don't I don't I don't feel bad for a, a lack of utility um, in my work. We need useless beauty in the same way because it feeds the spirit. Um, in the same way that wild places feed our spirit, um, mm. that's an inherent good. Um, yeah. But and there's um, and there's wild beauty in many things, of course. Yes, you know, yeah, absolutely. Including um, nature. Yeah, but in, and including, you know, um, pure joy, comedy, fun. Music. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, but I just I just think that um, we're really good at letting ourselves off the hook when it comes to paying attention to the, you know, the urgent um, moments of our time. And I think as this moment gets more urgent, as the science is just now so solid, so confronting, it's sort of viscerally confronting when you see the IPCC report, when you get the, um, you know, the Secretary General of the United Nations basically saying that, you know, we're in a burning world and we, we're, it's way, way, way past time that we do something about it. it I just, I just think that, you know, all citizens, um, and this is, I guess this is my point, writers are citizens. They're not absolved of citizenship and the responsibilities to the community. And if you are a, if you are a storyteller in whatever form, you know, um, I guess I've been thinking about this, you know, the last few years and in the last few months very intensively, you keep, you forget um, that you do have a responsibility to those who receive your stories, the readers, the listeners, um, the viewers um, you have a responsibility to tell them the truth. Writers aren't beautiful liars. Yeah. That was a bullshit idea that I suspect came out of postmodernism. You know, um, 
we're not beautiful liars and we're not thieves and we shouldn't be ripping viewers and readers and listeners off. We shouldn't be stealing their time by hiding from them what's happening um, in the world and what's going to happen to their children and their children's children. When we're really looking at, you know, um, you know, we're, we're, we're already locked into 1.5 degrees of heating by um, the end of the century. That's if we do stuff, you know, all the things that we're promising to do and largely not doing. Um, but under business as usual, you know, we're probably locked into 2.7, 2.9 degrees of, of heating, which is catastrophic, you know. Um, yes, it doesn't sound much, but the impact of that small degree is yeah. extraordinary. Yeah, and look, you know, uh, you know where I am. Uh, you know, we in, in October, um, our mean uh, daily um, maximum temperature was thirty eight point four. That's spring, um, and if if the nighttime temperature got below twenty degrees, it was like, oh, great, better put a coat on. <laughs> so you know, that, when you when you're just putting a few points on um, over time, I mean, essentially, where I live in the northern part of Western Australia, by the end of the century, you won't be able to live here. You'll be living in bunkers. Um, it, it, and I know what it feels like when it's 50 degrees and I think the hottest temperature I've experienced is 51.6 or something. And that's that that feels apocalyptic when if you can – the only way I can describe what that feels like is if, if you put a fluffy hotel towel – you know, those big white fluffy hotel towels. You stick that in the tumble dryer for 10 minutes and then try and breathe it. Um, the air is so thick and fluffy, you feel like you're gagging on it. Um, when you open your eyeballs, uh, you open your eyes and, and close them again, you, your lids get stuck. Um, everything dries out. It's terrifying. So I, I think I just I don't really think that people understand just how um, – just how quickly this is happening and what that feels like, you know. Um, if we added a few degrees of humidity to, you know, to the desert heat that um, I'm dealing with, you know, even in the 30s, um, you know, your body's just going to shut down. And that's about 122 Fahrenheit for those um, in the States and other parts of the world in Fahrenheit. A um, couple of points to pick up there. Um, you mentioned a little earlier about not wanting to uh, forget that actually your work has an audience and there is an audience for that work. And and I very much view story and the making process as really only 50% of the collaboration. There is always another side. There is always the audience who are going to experience it in some, in some way. And so that kind of has to, I think the audience has to be part of the conversation from, from, the, from the beginning to understand that, that impact. But secondly, to given that you've lived in other parts of the world, you've moved around and you've chosen this particular patch of the world to live in. That's a pretty confronting thing to acknowledge that the place that you hold the most dear, the place that you've decided to be in has the significant potential of being uninhabitable in the not so distant future. That's what makes it real. You know, when you know that you and your neighbors are gradually becoming uninsurable, um, that you know, I mean, I have four grandchildren. Um, I, I know that their children will probably not be able to live here, and they probably, unless we d take urgent action, um, they 
probably won't experience um, the things that are uh, in the air and in the water and on the land because those those wonders um, w- will be absent. It's quite possible that I'll be a I'll be a climate refugee in my own lifetime, and that my my family will be part of a, a, a southward migration um, that's going to happen all over my continent, Australia, and it's going to happen all over everybody's continents as everybody moves away from the equator and goes south of Capricorn and north of Cancer. And that's that's not science fiction. That's that's happening now. Um, last week, the, the Australian government signed a, a treaty with Tuvalu, uh, basically saying that your citizens can come and, uh, and live in Australia as your island uh, nation goes underwater. <laughs> it's frustrating to me that it, we've made that arrangement, but uh, we haven't made any arrangements to actually stop um, uh, fossil fuel exploration and, and exploitation, and we're still subsidising fossil fuels at an obscene rate. Um, but when a, when a national government makes an arrangement with another national government for the provision of, of, uh, of refuge uh, under climate, um, you know, you know this is real. Mm. Yes, on the one hand, encouraging, but yet on the other hand, it's almost like we've already jumped to the to to the worst possible worst possible outcome, where a lot of those Pacific Island nations. I've worked and done stories in Kiribati in particular, which you know, its highest point is three meters above ground, and um, you know, it's a an island group of 100,000 people sitting there in the Pacific um, waiting for the waves to come. I don't want to sound dramatic, but that really is the reality of the situation and and that has already arrived. Yeah, look, you're not, you're not sounding dramatic. I mean, you're probably underselling it, if anything. This is really al- alarming stuff and anybody who's not alarmed just isn't paying attention or they're part of... Um, they're part of this effort to disguise what's happening for political and financial reasons. I'm I just cannot get my head around the degree to which the actual material facts of life are being hidden from people by right-wing think tanks and the oil and gas industry, and that's been happening for a generation. That's a crime against humanity on a scale that is unforgivable. Um, and, and we need to keep calling that out. It, it is remarkable that um, you'd have to apologise for sounding a bit dramatic about an island nation being extinguished by rising sea levels and other island nations becoming immiserated because of the acidification of the oceans for the same reason or, uh, you know, people having to leave, flee their drought-stricken countries um, close to the equator uh, in, in Africa in particular because the, their lands are just baking. Yeah, I don't think we should apologise for speaking like that. In terms of what storytellers do in the future, I mean, it's 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 difficult. I mean, I think we, we'll have to invent new ways of doing things. We're going to have to be bold. We're going to have to be prepared to make mistakes, make fools of ourselves because the the... the the stakes are so high. I just don't think we can hide behind our 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 cultural vanity and our our cynicism and our irony. In a, in a climate emergency, irony is going to be about as you know useful as a one legged bikey in an ass kicking competition. Um, 
you know, I, I, I think we, we're going to need to to take radical steps, reinvent um, ourselves as storytellers. It probably means breaking some shit. <laughs> I love that point, and we'll come back to it in a second. If you'd like to hear the full force of Tim Whitten tonight, he'll be delivering a keynote uh, presentation at the announcement of the Nature Conservancy Australia 2023 Nature Writing Prize at RMIT University in Melbourne. The five finalists who are up for uh, the grand prize include Bonnie Cassidy, Lily Chan, Leslie Head, uh, Connor Thomas O'Brien and David Whitty. Head across to thecapital.tv to find out more and to read more about the finalists or the winners. Uh, head to natureaustralia.org.au. I wanted to return to uh, something you were talking a little earlier about changing the dominant narrative. And we talked earlier about that being around story making, propping up that fossil fueled capitalism. But what are we changing the narrative to? Well, that's it for this free edition of the Storymakers Institute. If you'd like to hear the full episode, all you need to do is head to our website, thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com and become a paid subscriber today.